family and welcome to another episode of the jigsaw podcast you know who i am this is your boy josh rogers and i am super excited to be here this week before we get started i just want to say to all of the new listeners welcome to everyone who is here welcome back um this is the podcast you know what it is it's a podcast where we talk about all of the things and what other things we talk about the perils, the praises, the productivity, and the pump and circumstance of being a black millennial shoot, a black person right here in this real world. How are you doing? Hope you're doing great. Um, if you can do me a quick favor, if you listen to this for the first time, make sure that you like it, you subscribe it, you should share it. These things um, help us continue to grow, help us push what we're trying to push by elevating and amplifying black voices. And that's super, super important, right? So help us do that as we continue to grow as a podcast. I am super excited about today's conversation. Oh, wait a minute. I did not finish doing our wellness check. Y'all doing good? I'm doing okay. I am doing really great. I'm excited about this being a new month. I'm excited about September, and I am excited to get into all the wonderful things that I think this month is going to hold. It's my birthday month. I just celebrated my eighth anniversary with my wife, so I'm expecting more and amazing things to continue to happen as we continue to progress. These are these pockets of joy that I was talking about last week and the ways in which we can continue to persevere and to push and to go forward um so yeah i hope that you're doing the same things finding pockets of joy and finding ways in which you can keep going and overcome all of the crap that 2020 has thrown our way okay okay all right super excited about this episode but i won't hold you too much longer um we talking about hbcus today and yeah it's gonna be super super dope y'all know i love all things black and hbcus have a special place in my heart specifically my love for my dear old mother morehouse i, I love my school um and shout out to everybody else who went to hbcus all right so let's get ready to get into this conversation let's go into the bless up report yeah This week on the Blessed Report, we are going to kind of start off on a more somber note. Um, We have to acknowledge, though, the life and the legacy of our dear brother, Chadwick Boseman. Recently, he passed away from stage four colon cancer. It was amazing to see the love of his community because he was diagnosed in 2016, was able to create countless moments of just cinematic gold and he was able to keep his struggle with the disease private in a way that he wanted to so that's the first thing i want to note so shout out to his entire community who honored his wishes and allowed him to process and to go through that really trying time in a way that he thought was best for him and he handled it with such grace and with such dignity and with such class many um much like the ways in which he performed his art right because he played some really big characters he was Thurgood Marshall he was Jackie Robinson he portrayed James Brown and most notably he was the Black Panther and I think that is the role in which kind of really 
catapulted him into just superstar. Like he was already Chadwick Boseman, right? He was already a great actor, but the Black Panther just specifically for the black community just permanently stamped him as one of our favorites, one of our icons, one of our legends. And he was able to provide voice in a space that really did not have black voices that really did not have black representation and that is in the world of superheroes so many times those spaces are filled with white people more specifically white men and I know me as a child even though I saw the Black Panther as a fully grown adult (laughs) me as a child I did not have black superheroes we had um the black power ranger right but he wasn't out front he wasn't the main guy he wasn't you know just kind of force right and the fact that chadwick was able to portray this character with such excellence and it was rooted right within africa and all of the beautiful intelligence and grace and wisdom that was birthed from this wonderful place of Wakanda and T'Challa being the head of all of that was just beautiful to see and his love and admiration for black women within the movie and it was just everything so um, it was a huge loss for the black community for the world at large and we are sending all of our prayers all of our good vibes all of our positive thoughts to his family and those who are grieving on a more intimate level but we are definitely grieving because this is a huge loss for the community and while this may not be our typical way of celebrating and highlighting black excellence we could not let the show go on without really paying homage to the legacy and the excellence that was and is Chadwick Boseman so bless up to you brother for all of your work we love you we appreciate you we feel like you are gone too soon but we are definitely going to continue to honor everything that you did here on earth all right let's get into the billboard you know this is our hot topics or our pop culture segment um so monday was a big night in the culture and why was it such a big night because there was another versus battle but you know we've had plenty of those what made it so big it was brandon versus monica that's why it was so big and it was a night for the culture it was a night for r&b um i think that it was amazing they took us down memory lane with all of the wonderful songs i wanna be down uh, for what you're going through i wanna be down sitting up in my room uh, nice to you. Uh, and then Monica, so gone over you, 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 right? <laughs> Just one of them days uh, uh, that a girl goes through when you're lonely inside, right? So all of the things, right? I'm nobody singing, but y'all know I will bust out a song at any moment. But all of the things, they took us down memory lane and kind of made us realize that we should not have been probably singing and associating ourselves with those songs at six seven eight nine ten eleven twelve years old but nevertheless here we are uh <laughs> it was really great um i in terms of who won i came in thinking monica would not necessarily it was not gonna be a landslide at all right because brandy has hits monica has hits but one i am a bigger fan of monica's music and that comes from i want to debunk the myth that comes from someone who's while i may not be the best singer i am musically inclined right i play keys i was in the band i study music um so yeah i know a thing or two so um but i still enjoyed her music more now i definitely enjoy brandy's artistry 
far more um, the abilities that she has with her voice, her technicality, her creativity, and just her the way that she colors her notes and her phrasing and the placement and her tone is all beautiful. Uh, but that does not take away from my ability to really appreciate Monica's um, music, like just her songs and the relatability in her music and her personality. I think all that shows up more in Monica's art, right? So I kind of thought Monica was going to win on that because versus, right, it's not about artistry. It's not about necessarily who's the the most creative and who's the, you know, more technical singer. It's really all about the hits. And I think just as a side note, we get so caught up in who we like the most. And we always bring our biases to these little competitions or whatever but I think in this particular case we are so caught up in the ability of these two singers that we actually kind of got lost in what versus is really about and it's hit for hit uh, but as the show would prove is that while I never thought that Brandy would just lose like 15 to 2 or anything crazy like that I did think that Monica would have a slight edge but that proved not to be the case because Monica played like she played her song Sideline Ho which I was never really a fan of that song but she also played it against I can't remember the song but one of the one of more Brandy's more relevant and you know bigger bigger songs and in that case right in a competition that song lost Monica also played a song that she did with the, them franchise boys and I was just like no she also played a song that she did with Keisha Cole and I can't give Monica a point for anything that she did with Keisha Cole right so there was just ways in which she played songs that were just, to me, bigger hits or better songs, in my opinion. Same thing with Brandy. Brandy played some of her really great songs, but matched up against one of Monica's big hits. Like, for example, So Gone, it really didn't. There were only maybe one or two songs that Brandy could have played against So Gone <laughs> that would have been better, right? Or, you know, at least gave them a tie. So like it was things like that. But beyond that, I think the, the versus battle was great. Of course, it was the biggest one. Black women did what black women do, and they broke records. You know what I'm saying? They did their thing. Um, but watching it was kind of awkward. Sitting there, <laughs> seeing them throw this little shade and passes at each other was very interesting. Um, they did recognize that they had not spoken to each other in about eight years, which makes complete sense because they did a record together in 2012. It all belongs to me or all belongs to you, whatever it's called. Um, and that was the last time that they collaborated, which I think that collaboration they were on breakfast club after that come after that after that song and i think after their breakfast club and their promotional tour a little bit of that childhood beef kind of resurrected and they just hadn't really spoken about or to each other in that amount of time and then they did say that they had an opportunity to connect prior to the versus battle um but it really i heard um, Takia from one of my favorite podcasts, Getting Grown, say that it really looked like, you know how you could be cool at the Christmas party? You know what I'm saying? Well, you get the work, it's like back to normal. And that's just kind of how it was. Like I think many, because they show some behind the scenes of them laughing and kiki. And I think when we're in social settings, most of us know how to be social, right? We know how to do that. But when it's time to work, we work. So what we saw behind the scenes was them laughing and great energy. And that was them being social because they were just laughing and joking. But at the same time, when we were in front of the camera, it was like more work and part of that work was for them to kind of be personable but I think because there's kind of some I believe that there are probably a ton of unresolved issues still there and the fact that it's just been a the fact that there was such a long time between the last time that they spoke and the fact that before that time they weren't already like friends like that 
just made it awkward for them to reconnect and you couldn't expect too much more out of anyone you know what i'm saying let's just say you caught up with somebody you went to school with and you barely kind of talked. y'all was like okay but y'all barely talk and then like 10 years later y'all meet up like outside of kind of reconnecting on what's going on you probably wouldn't be able to sit there for three hours and have full-fledged conversations with them either right on top of them possibly having um you know having the beef and the issues that they had from the past so i think there were a lot of unresolved issues i personally think that brandy threw more shots unnecessary shade and she was kind of overcompensating um to maintain this image and whatever it is that she has to do that's my personal opinion we can have a whole conversation about that later but yeah overall though i do think the real winner beyond all the awkwardness and stuff was r&b the real winner was for the culture if you expect them to go on tour again monica already said we ain't no group <laughs> so if you expect them to go on tour or to create another song and collaborate i would hold my breath breath because i don't think that that's coming i don't think that they exchange phone numbers and email addresses and all that kind of stuff when it was all over but I do think that you can see a resurgence in their music, which you've already seen. I do think the level of exposure to a generation who may or may not have known who they are. Um, I think you will see something like that. And I'm just excited that they're getting an opportunity to do what they do best. And that is record great music and to give the people, the fans what they want. And that is wonderful art. All right. All right. So very quickly, Old Navy is planning to... Um, pay their employees all their employees a full shift if they decide to work in the election polls in november i think this is great for a few reasons one this is a historic election it is unprecedented that we're voting in the ways in which we're going to be voting via a pandemic it is also a very critical election um, because we have a complete idiot in office and although our alternative is not a whole lot better um there are i've discussed it before there are ways in which we can hold the biden harris ticket more accountable than we can this current administration and all of the other cabinet and important positions that comes with the presidency are also at stake right so anyway i'm not going to get back on this soapbox but i will say because of all these historic and important and kind of unprecedented things i think it is great that old navy as a company is allowing their employees to be able to do this and get paid a full salary so they don't have to you know take a day off or do anything like that um like we all have the right to go vote right and have like be compensated for i think so many hours or something like that but to be able to take a whole day off and work a day to help um mitigate all the issues and be a part of the process of voting is something totally different and i'm super appreciative that old navy is allowing their employees to do that in the way that they should be able to do it and as i end this part everybody go vote everybody go vote everybody go vote all right so tyler perry today according to forbes has become a billionaire well at least it was notified to us i don't know if he came a billionaire today uh, but it was notified to us that he became a billionaire and that is what's up i am super excited for mr perry he has broken barriers he has done some amazing things in terms of providing outlets and opportunities for people of color specifically black and brown people even more specifically black women um i will never negate the fact that he has you know he really is a rags to riches story from homelessness to billionaire and really doing it on his own right um he don't he doesn't have the typical traditional story of the hollywood exec or the person who um kind of you know, had this kind of break and kind of ease his way in. And not to say there's anything wrong with that, right? Because we all have different paths towards success, but it makes it 
doubly gratifying and satisfying when he's able to kind of own his own path and how he navigated it towards success. Um, so regardless of all the trash films and movies and stuff that he makes, right, we do appreciate what he has done for the culture in terms of bringing black content that does deserve quite a bit of critique, but he's brought black content and he's also provided opportunities for people who otherwise may not have been in films, may not have seen the kind of resurrection and resurgence in their career if it was not for the likes of Mr. Perry. So absolutely uh, shout out to him. Congratulations. Um, that is something amazing. And unlike many other billionaires, I do know that he is going to take his money and do real good in the community and give back to those who could absolutely benefit from his wealth and his resources all right lastly for all of you power lovers power book two ghost that chronicle is premiering this sunday september 6th now stars reach out to your boy if you need a recap podcast or a recap blog i am available and able willing and ready to write or talk about uh, this current segment new installment of the power series so 50 cent hit your boy up i'm willing and open but no seriously um it's coming back, you know, Ghost Die in Power. And this particular segment of the series will chronicle Tariq and um, his mom, Tasha, and how she's navigating the prison process and all those different types of things. So it's going to be interesting. Um, I, we all know that Tariq is not a fan favorite. Um, and just also, I don't know that his character was strong enough to be the, the focal point of a series. So we will see how the other supporting cast members and that entire ensemble works together to make this a powerful show on the more optimistic end. Let's really hope that this has become such, you know, a, a big hit and not just like a, one-off because of the initial hype but let's just hope that this is a really big hit like power was as i think that did something great for the culture too right we were able to have that um even with all its violence and everything else right we had something for the culture that we could discuss and we saw again black voices and black talent amplified so if nothing else we appreciate that and on the second part let's also hope that um it's just successful in general right because we want to see black art succeed all righty so let's get ready and go into the living room um let me let, let me let me do something real quick because i'm super excited about this conversation you already know i said it is about it is about the hbcus and i just want to show it so wait a minute can y'all hear that can y'all hear that uh 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 there it is there it is you know this is one of my favorite shows too uh what may Mm, there it is, I know now that I'm ready, yeah <laughs> Cause I finally heard them say That what is it Aretha, it's a what? Sing it to them Uh-huh, from you come from Um, yes it is now Yeah, we gonna play the whole thing Here's our chance to make it, yeah Hey, if we <laughs> What am I doing? Boom, 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 boom. <laughs> Come on, come on, come on, come on, come on. <laughs> this is foolishness, but I'm out here now, so I can't give up. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Take us home, Aretha. Take us home. Rest in peace, Queen. 
That's absolutely right. We are talking about HBCUs, the HBCU culture today. I was able to sit with my frat brother, elected official from my hometown. What up, Memphis? Graduate of Lemoyne Owen College, the only HBCU within the city of Memphis. My brother, Mikhail Lowry, and we had an amazing conversation. So without further ado, let's go into the living room. Let's get ready to do this. Grab your drink, grab your water, grab your snack, head into the living room, go take a seat on the couch, and let's get into this conversation. What's going on, y'all? We are back in the living room, and today I'm super excited. We're going to have a conversation about something that's near and dear to my heart, and that is the beauty of historically black colleges and universities. I have someone special in the room, my frat brother, um, my Memphis brother, um, Mikhail yeah. Lowry is here. May introduce yourself and tell the people what you do. What's going on, good brother? Well, thanks. So, uh, again, hello, everyone. My name is Mikhail Lowry. I am a, a Shelby County Commissioner for District 8, and District 8 covers all of downtown, uh, a large majority of uh, South Memphis, uh, especially where Lamona College is, is located. I'm proud of that, uh, Soulsville, yeah. uh, as well as Frazier, uh, as well, a little bit of North Memphis, so a large area. That's what's up. And for y'all who are not familiar, you know, that's where Gotti's from, from our hometown. He's the king of Memphis. <laughs> so no all the bops that you're bopping to right now is a product of our hometown. Um, but let's dive straight into it, man. Um, a lot of people are going back to school. Um, there's a lot of conversations around HBCUs right now, specifically with our vice presidential nominee on the Democratic ticket. And we'll talk about that a little bit later. But um, let's just start off by asking what made you choose an HBCU and specifically why Lemoyne Owen College? Well, I grew up in an HBCU family. Okay. Uh, my mother went to Fort Valley State. My sister uh, went to Clark. Okay. Uh, my brother spent some time with Morehouse as well. So I didn't know anything else in my family. And thankfully that uh, to led me to a, go to HBCU. I always knew I wanted to go to HBCU. It just matter, just matter what HBCU would it be. Mm -hmm. uh, what led me to Lemoyne though uh, was basketball. And I'm okay. always thankful, I have to say this, I'm always thankful to uh, Coach Jerry Johnson, who's a living legend, who just turned 102 years old. Uh, he's one of, he's a Memphis legend. He's a national legend. Uh, but uh, thankful to him for uh, giving me that basketball scholarship and helping me pay for my education. Uh, so it turned out to be one of the best decisions I ever made to choose Lamont on College. But, you know, it was always taught to my family, though, mm -hmm. that it was important to go to HBU, HBCU because of the family-oriented environment. Yeah. Um, quite frankly, uh, the high school that I graduated with, I graduated from, was probably at the time 60-40, uh, 40% uh, black. Uh, okay. So uh, a lot of diversity uh, in that school. But, you know, again, a lot of folks who didn't look like you and I as well. Uh, so I wanted that HBCU experience. I grew up uh, in a time where, um, you know, a different world was coming out, right? Yeah, and, yeah. And, and, and so I, I was I was young during those times. So I want heck, I, wanna, I was like, where's Hillman at? When I was thinking, about, how about, <laughs> I thought it was a real spot. I'm like, where, where is that at? You know? Yeah. Uh, so I grew up in that era where uh, you really want that HBCU experience. Uh, you wanted the bands. You wanted the pep rallies. You wanted the homecomings. You wanted all that stuff. I didn't get football from the morning because we didn't have a football team. Mm -hmm. Um but uh, I got all that from traveling around, so that's why I chose HBCU. That's what's up. And shout out to your brother and sister for the AUC love. I'm a Morehouse graduate um, oh, yeah. myself. Yeah, so, man, and, and you're absolutely right. There's this, like, 
environment, this familial sense that we have at HBCUs, because they're large enough to still feel like big colleges, but also small enough so that you can have that kind of intimate feel as well. And I think I had the opposite experience of high school, right? So I graduated from Hillcrest. Okay. Yeah. And it was like 99.9% black. Like we had one yeah. white girl in my, <laughs> in my graduation, in my graduating class. And mm-hmm. I, for that reason, due to like young ignorance, didn't want to go to HBC because I'm like, uh-huh. I want diversity, but yeah. not really understanding that in our black communities, how much diversity is really present. So Morehouse really, the AUC, Morehouse, Spelman, Clark, all of that really opened up my eyes to the beauty of diversity in our black community and what we can bring as a people as well. Um, So just like, that leads us straight into our next question. What are some of the common misconceptions that you think people have about historically black colleges? Oh gosh, there there are quite a few, yeah. and, uh, and and there's truth. There's a little bit of truth to every, and a little bit of humor. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I think the misconception number one uh, is that you won't be as marketable for job opportunities upon graduation. And you know, and I understand some of that to a certain extent, but until mm-hmm. you get in the real world and you realize that uh, it's not what it's about, it's about what did you gather from why you were the experience how mm-hmm. were, were you able to network sure some larger schools and some well-named schools can help you from, from a um networking standpoint yeah. and open some doors from you uh definitely but but that's a misconception at all because what what it does what you don't realize is that people and companies are looking for diversity they're looking for mm-hmm. diversity experiences diversity of thought uh, and, and what you and what we bring to a table from HBCU experience is totally different with someone that uh, necessarily didn't have that or went to uh, a predominantly white school. Yeah. Uh, we bring that diversity of thought. We bring those the diversity of experiences. Uh, and then, you know, for me, I always looked at it, to be honest with you, brother, I looked at it as, as having a chip on my shoulder. Because mm-hmm. I knew I could compete with anybody. I just need to get in the room. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah I, I knew. I, I, I Listen, you know, and, and, and that's just a little bit of the mentality that you have from HBCU. You don't care if you're competing with someone that went to, you know, Harvard, Yale, whatever it may be. And, and shout out to anybody that can get in those schools. They're just not letting anybody in. So, mm-hmm. you know, you have to have some uh, a tremendous amount of brain power and, 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 and tenacity to get in those schools. So uh, I'm not disparaging that. But all I'm saying is, is when you put put me on a level playing field. If I don't know it, I'm gonna figure it out. And if Thanks, you, know, yeah. you know, so I always took this kind of mentality. So I always wanted to put myself up against who was considered, you know, best of the best. And I think that's what I know. It's what HBCU does for you. It gives you that confidence, mm-hmm. uh, which is important in a lot of things in life. Because as you know, you know a lot of things that you learn uh, out in the workforce. But things you inquire while you're there. I mean, they're going to train you, things of that nature. There's some there are principles and skills that you need to bring to the table, unless you're obviously doing some strict discipline. I'm talking about, you know, being a doctor, things of that nature. It's some yeah. things you got to know. But, you know, from, from the sector world I'm in, uh, from a business standpoint, from a governmental standpoint, uh, those things that you're going to learn and, and grasp is about what you bring to the table. So that's a misconception that I need to go here so I can get a better job. And in today's environment where you have – places like the National Black NBA, which recruits from all over, mm-hmm. and other organizations, things of that nature that allow you to compete for internships and jobs. Uh, it's about being having that confidence in bringing, bringing your best self to the table, not necessarily what's, uh, behind, what the school is behind the degree. Yeah, absolutely. Because even like at Morehouse, right, just talking through my experience, 
the diversity, I'll say that again. Like I had individuals who like, we had celebrities, kids who went. So that's a level of privilege. Um, yeah. You know, yeah. they went to like these really fancy private schools that had quote unquote, the best educations. Yeah. And um, and even, so that's entering, but even graduating, like I had friends who left Morehouse and went straight to Goldman Sachs. I had friends yeah. who went, you know, straight into some of the top tier um, Ivy League institutions for their graduate and professional degree programs. So I think that's a major misconception that a lot of people have wrong about us that we can't compete or we get this almost watered down version right. of education. And I don't, that's just not fair. And it's not no, accurate. No, it's, it's not. It's not. And you gain a lot of other experiences too, being at a smaller institution and especially being around HBCUs. I know I did. I mean, there's some experiences that I don't think I would have gotten anyplace else if it hadn't been for me being at Lamona on college. And then just like you just said, you know, people, uh, especially in Warhouse is a great school and Howard, obviously we'll talk more about our, our, uh, our future vice, Madam Vice President. Yeah. Hopefully. But, uh, but when you see people at these schools are, are being successful in their own right, uh, then it takes employers in the, in the corporate world or wherever it may be to take a look and wow, you know, if that person came from there, there's other gems, there are other diamonds in the rough as well. So, um, you know, that's a great point. Yeah. So like, so to lean into that a little bit more as the world continues to progress, I'm using air quotes here, right? Yeah, sure. A lot of people are saying that HBCUs aren't necessary anymore, right? They were founded yeah. because we couldn't get yeah. into PWIs and things like yeah. that. What do you say to those critics who say that the relevance of them are, you know, are, it's in, like, it's not there? Well, I, I mean, then I, then I have, to, I have to tell those critics, we got to look at some facts, right? Yeah. So then I said, we got to look at some numbers, you know? So, uh, <laughs> Uh, they say numbers don't lie. Sometimes they can be misconstrued a little bit. But uh, the highest percentage of doctors, lawyers, scientists mm -hmm. are still coming from HBCUs. That's, that's a proven fact. Uh, again, they may go someplace else for their graduate school, but they're starting their undergrad, their underground, uh, underground, undergrad uh, um, college walk at an HBCU. Right. So that's what, that's what the numbers say. Uh, and then I'll, I'll point to something that you can't really put a number on. And that's about the opportunity that some people get at HBCUs they may not get other places. Uh, made by needing, needing that smaller environment, smaller classroom environment, that mm -hmm. family environment that um, some folks, quite frankly, you need that. You need that little kick in the butt. You need yeah. that you need that person to register the office who know your name. You need the president <laughs> to know your name. You need, you need, you need for the, the vice president of academic affairs to see you on campus, see you in the yard and say, why aren't you in class? And, and care about what you are doing mm -hmm. as opposed of being lost in translation or lost in the numbers. Some people don't need that. A lot of people do. Yeah. And it takes that type of environment for some people to, to, to develop, to, to matriculate, and then also to bring that kind of uh, family environment. I mean, you know, we, you mentioned that, uh, you alluded to uh, our, our Madam Vice President, hopefully, um, uh, with uh, Senator Harris, but you know she, when she mentioned that in her speech about family, yeah. and you can always equate HBCUs to family. Oh, absolutely. That's exactly that, that's exactly that's exactly right. So you never know what environment someone came from prior to going to college. They have family around. Maybe mm -hmm. can, you know. Maybe their their home environment wasn't the best. You gain family at HBCUs. You, you there are people. And I graduated a long time ago, but I'm still close to uh, people I live in the dorms with. We're still tight to this day. I mean, people who are still at that college that helped me get to where I am. And then people who come behind you, you realize they have a sense of that family as well. And, and now, you're, now you're a part of something that, you know, when people 
um, have come along 15, 20 years later, they're like, hey, we have something in common here. So um, that family environment is, is immensely important. Yeah. So, and you kind of started, you are, you are talking about like the culture of HBCUs. And so let's just talk about your culture experience specifically at um, Lemoyne on College, right? Um, and the ability to have like those teachers and professors and administrators who really care. Because I remember it was senior year, one of the hardest political science professors in the program, um, and a guy walked in late and he started singing a song that he made up right on the spot in like Negro spiritual fashion and was like, anytime, anytime, you niggas walk in my class anytime. <laughs> and, but to his point, he was able to say that to us. Right. And like, it was, it was like cutting, it was scathing. And then even after that told him like, get out of my classroom. But then we'll be looking for him the next, the next class. And that guy was the first one in there already seated before any of us there. And to your point, wow. Some of us may have felt disrespected. We may have been like, what the heck is going on? It was that level, that cut, that almost was like that tough love. Like, I care so much that I can't allow you, Black man, to show up in my class late. So let's talk about, like, just the culture and the environment that HBCUs bring and, like, some of the things that you enjoyed the most. Oh, well, you know, there are a lot of things I enjoyed. I mean, we had yeah. a great, as you know, the HBCU experience, you know, it really does uh, bring out the life uh, when mm. it comes to the college experience, uh, from Greek life uh, to 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 athletics to the academics to to you know a wide array array of things here, but you're exactly right when you talk about um, helping you to mature and grow. So yeah. most H, most HBCUs, and I know you had it in Morehouse, but most HBCUs uh, have a chapel day, and you yep. got to, and so you, you know, so. You know, that's that's probably the college experience where a lot of people who don't go to HBCU like, wait a minute. And we had to be at chapel at a certain time every week. Every Thursday at 11 a.m. Yeah, okay. It was, <laughs> it was Wednesdays for us, right? And so in some of those things, and don't get me wrong, none of us were clamoring at 18, 19 years old, whatever it may be, to be in chapel. But we were there. We were required mm -hmm. to be. But as we got there, we got fed. We got a little bit of knowledge. We got, we got fed into spiritually. And those things that you don't even know that's having an impact on you or having an impact on you as you grow through your, your walk through uh, uh, going to an HBCU. So I, I look back at the experience, and yeah, I could talk to you about, you know, dorm and being an athlete and things of that nature. I was eventually, I became SGA president while I was at Lamorne College, and that helped me be able to travel um, mm -hmm. a lot and uh, to represent the school and help me see a lot of uh, different aspects of uh, different parts of our, of, our, of, our, of our country. But you know, when I think about those things that I didn't know that was having an impact on me, yeah. such as when I think about some of those professors that I didn't know that was having an impact on me when I was slacking and wasn't what do I need to do, uh, and was able to kind of pull me to the side and have a conversation that kind of tell me I don't look, I don't care if you're an athlete, <laughs> you, know, <laughs> you know. I'm trying when I'm trying to give every excuse in the book about yeah. you know being on that bus and on the road and. Uh, now, one thing I tell you, they help me with my negotiation skills. They help me, well, that didn't work out. He tried something <laughs> the next time. But also being able to be held accountable. Mm -hmm. you know, I can't make excuses for these things. And having someone as, uh, that, that cared enough to see uh, that I got an opportunity. Because, you know, another environment could have just said, okay, uh, Mr. Lowry, that's what you want to do. Here's your F. Call it a day. Take it over. Then next thing you know, I'm in. More, I mean, I'm taking more classes. I'm in more debt. I'm taking more time to graduate. All those things have a have an effect long term of what you're doing currently. So uh, those things like that help me really appreciate the experience. Yeah, absolutely. And then like you know, just 
to kind of your point, some of the other stuff was just like I know fried chicken Wednesdays was a thing. Yeah, no um, you know, was, fried fish Fridays. Yeah, we we yeah, we had and that, now they fried up tilapia at Morehouse, yeah. which I kind of side eye, but like they had it. And then like every Wednesday we had this thing called Hump Wednesday. Well, it was literally just a block party right oh. there in the middle of the yard every single Wednesday, but it was more than just us kicking it, right? So SGA would be out there yeah. promoting whatever initiative that the school had at the moment or um, during homecoming, they had like this really um, distressed total car in the middle of campus. And it was like to inc like discourage drinking and driving. So like yeah. they use almost like these cookout family reunion type moments. to, like you said, like there were, there were very few moments that a lot of our, especially school-based gatherings were not moments of learning and development and growth and even just seeing some of the i definitely know in my political theory classes they would like start in the classroom and end up on the yard because mm -hmm. we just were not done we were arguing about how socrates related to whatever we were talking about in 2009 right and yeah. that's just stuff that when i went to arkansas state for my master's and then georgia state for a second master's that i just didn't get there i mean partly yeah. because i wasn't i was part-time um but the other part like it's just stuff that i didn't see among students and professors and faculty. No, I mean, I mean, interject with that one too, because I agree with you. I, I, I um, graduated from Lamont, mm -hmm. worked for a couple of years. I want to get my master's from the University of Arkansas. Okay. And so uh, the conversations were nothing like that once you got, when I got to the University of Arkansas. Yeah. I appreciate that. I appreciate the experience. I appreciate the diversity uh, of, of thought and of, and of the environment, but it was nothing like the environment, you know, that I came from. But which is good. You need those experiences as well because you know obviously there's an aspect of what the world looks like. But you're exactly right. There's some there's something about being able to build up that confidence first mm -hmm. to be glad you had those experiences, to have those conversations, to know how far you can take it with someone that can, you know, will still be cool afterwards to the point where you know when you get to another environment, like oh, I may just need to cut that off right there and, and go from that. Yeah, I mean, because one thing that you know we can we having a family conversation right now is that navigating that financial aid office. It's a it's a skill. <laughs> it is a skill within itself, man. The first day of school, that line is like all the way out. You would think everything is ready by the time classes start, and it's not. Um, so let's talk through some ways in which, like, just navigating the HBCU process, administration specifically, fosters real growth and maturity. Yeah, it it it, it really does. Uh, it helps you understand to live with uh, uh, setbacks. Yeah, uh, it helps you. I, I, it, it you eventually have empathy for people as well, but you also have uh, it, it takes a little bit of appreciation for for having to learn how to navigate the process. Sometimes, listen, we grew up. We all grew up in the world before you go to college. Uh, you grew up where, where service, um, you know, it's kind of rarely handed to you. You know, you go through the drive-through, Chick Fil A tells you, mm -hmm. you know, you know, it's my pleasure and all that kind of stuff. Those work stuff works the way it's supposed to. And unfortunately, and listen, we got some growing pains. We don't need to make excuses for our HBCU when it comes to this. We need to have better technology, things of that nature. We're working on that Lamona on College. We're able to do something from that from the county standpoint. I'll speak on that later. But uh, when you go to college and you realize um, you're by yourself, you don't have your mother, your father, your uncle, your brother, whoever was your guardian to kind of help you out with those things. It's you in that financial aid line. It's you in that validation line. It's you uh, that make sure you're, you know, there's no one behind you asking where your paperwork is. You are responsible. So it teaches some responsibility as well. Because mm -hmm. sometimes, and I, so I, and I know my, the educators and the, and the administrators will, will appreciate this. Sometimes it takes a longer process because we don't have the stuff in order. And so, so if you can, Facts, yeah. yeah. And so, and so 
and so that family environment has someone talking with you while you're in front of that lap, while you're in front of that laptop, while you're in front of that registers uh, station to say, "Hey, young man. Hey, young lady. This is what you need. This is what I'm explaining to you. You should have had this. No, that's not right." Instead of saying, "Move out of my line. Go read the instructions on the website. Whatever it may be. Next in line." Now, someone did that. Like, wow, what kind of environment are I in my end? But sometimes it's taking that extra conversation for someone that didn't have their stuff in order. Yeah. And it's maybe not their fault. I mean, obviously, you know, this college, going to college is a new experience for everybody. No one knows about it until you do it, right? And so some of those things, uh, people just don't know. I got the wrong information. Well, I, I, I don't have the right paperwork with me. So it takes longer uh, if you don't do that kind of stuff online. So we, we, we don't make excuses for, the, for our HBCUs. But that teaches you a little bit something about responsibility. Uh, you, you, you realize really quickly that this isn't high school anymore and that um, I can't look over my shoulder and ask my parents for my paperwork, uh, who signed that for me. It's on me. So that, that, that you grow up really quickly. So for you specifically, did staying home make that easier, like make that transition or that navigation easier? Yeah, so I get one of those stories, man, that you know, um, most people, a lot of people know, a lot of people don't, but you know, I was born in Memphis. Uh, folks know that, um, but I actually grew up uh, a large portion of my life in Atlanta. Okay. Yeah. So, so, uh, so my I got that back and forth thing with you know I got a parent in in Memphis, I got a parent in Atlanta. Um, so I, high school here, I went to Craigmont, um, but I left my senior year because I wanted to play want to play ball at this school that's in Georgia. Is you know it's kind of a little bit prep school things of that nature. So I went to mm-hmm. play ball. Uh, uh, at a high school in Atlanta, uh, and then uh, got a couple offers and things of that nature for some schools, for some partial scholarships. Uh, and Lamont offered me a full scholarship. That's what brought me back to Memphis. Gotcha. So okay. I had the experience of, 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 of leaving uh, Memphis for a little bit and spending a lot of time in Atlanta, and, and always, you know, one thought about, well, am I going to go home, uh, back home? I was born. Am I going to stay in Atlanta and go to mm-hmm. school? So I had some choices there. So. Uh, for me, I had one of those experiences where I, I, I knew the environment from Memphis, but also knew other environments as well. So uh, that's what helped me make my choice. Got you. Okay. That's, that's super, super, super interesting. Um, you mentioned earlier that you were around when um, Different World was popular. And, yeah. um, and I won't point out, you know, how they, it's all yeah, good. <laughs> yeah, I, I won't point out how that kind of, you know, separates us by age, just a tad. <laughs> Cause I was like, just born though, but it's one of my, like different was one of my all time favorite shows. Yeah, no doubt. But I bring that up to say in the late eighties and nineties, like with school days, a different world, even looking at things like living single, um, Martin, Fresh Prince of Belair, you consistently yeah. like different world was about an HBCU, but in right. school days, the movie was about an HBCU. But even in our sitcoms, you saw, Morehouse sweaters, Howard, like all these different HBCU paraphernalia that people just ran, like had like no connections at all to these HBCUs, but definitely yeah. had on the paraphernalia. Um, so that was like this almost intentional thrust of support and um, exposure that they wanted to give through media, right? Where do you, why do you think that shifted? Because like we have shows like Blackish where Junior was supposed to go to Howard and the dad went to Howard, right? Um, and we have other black kind of sitcoms that are reemerging, but not more so that intentional push for education that promotes HBCUs, HBCUs specifically within black families. How do you, why do you think that shifted? Well, you know, that's a good question, man. I think, you know, obviously people look at what's, what's selling, what's from a viewership standpoint. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I tell you, there's a market there still for that because, you know, we, there, there's shows that are still popular 
Um, you, you mentioned Blackish, and obviously had a spinoff about the daughter going to college, right? Yeah. So, so, so there's one as well, and and, and there've been there've been Netflix shows that, that that are around high school, and you can see them matriculate into college as well. But you got to think about during that time, um, you know, who were behind those shows? You know, we're talking, you know, we're talking Bill Cosby, yeah. you know, you're talking Spike Lee, you're talking John Singleton. I mean, all those folks from a from a either they were either in a fraternity or went to HBCU themselves. They knew the importance of putting that image on film yeah. to give people another aspect. Because also what people want to for, for forget during that time, there was a other very other a, a large contrast of things that were being exposed as well. That was also during the time of you know a lot of movies that portrayed a lot of violence. Minister Society, I date myself on that, Boys in the Hood, things of that nature. Yeah, they had messages behind them. And the, the, the music that was really prevalent during that time as well was really, I mean, hey, Tupac made guest appearances on A Different World. I mean, that's how popular he yeah. was. So, <laughs> so you're talking about music on one aspect that, that showed one aspect of it. And then, so it was important, I thought I knew, for those people to show another aspect on cinema. Uh, we know how to differentiate. We know entertainment, but I think it was still important to have that say, hey, you can listen to that. That's cool. Go watch those movies. That's great. Go support. But also, here's another uh, depiction of that black woman or young black man. Uh, don't think it's just all what you hear on the radio and things of that nature. So uh, there was a good contrast there, which I thought was good. And and so, you know, I think there's a market for that. And I hope something like that comes back around again mm-hmm. that really shows the, the positive lights of HBCUs. And who knows, uh, again, with the with what's going on in our environment right now. Uh, a lot of um, things we want to be better and things that shouldn't transpire. Uh, but unfortunately, uh, when things do transpire, well, fortunately, it's unfortunate for events, but when things transpire in our community, in our nation, uh, you see an awakening of uh, some thought processes and things of that nature. Yeah. And so hopefully we'll lead, lead to that. So, like, speaking of that, do you think, and we mentioned it, like, a little bit earlier, do you think that the current nomination of Senator Harris is going to kind of reinvigorate that support and exposure? Oh, I think so, definitely, because yeah. it's going to invigorate us. Those who went to HBCUs or... Have you have, have we ever been shot out like that at a, at a <laughs> speech at, yeah. from a nominee? So, you know, it's, it's like someone said, she she belongs to all of us to a certain extent, a little piece of her, uh, of all of us from her experiences. And so I think definitely that's going, that's that's great for all HBCUs. I mean, even though obviously her alma mater as well, but, you know, that's going to shine a light on HBCUs, on the D9, on the Divine Nine as mm-hmm. well. Um, well, people who really didn't understand, well, what, what's, this or what's, what's an AKA or what, what is that? What, why is she part of the organization? And to see the good that that organization does, just like every other organization that's part of the D9 uh, family, uh, the mentoring, the, the, the philanthropy, the giving back to those organizations do, that's going to shine a light on those as well. So I, I think a lot of positive things are going to come from, uh, from this nomination. I think she's going to make sure to, to that to happen as well. So uh, again, and, and again, what it's going to do also for uh, our society, I think, is take a, look, a strong look at these schools and wonder, why don't we have a presence there? Why aren't we recruiting there? You know, why, you know we need to build our pipeline. If we're, we're talking about building the pipeline for diversity, then we got to be intentional about that. Let's go exactly where people are as well. So that, that means our HBCUs. So, and it's, it's interesting you said that because last year, maybe a year and a half ago, I had an opportunity to um, interview Tammy Sawyer, your, yeah. your colleague on the um, um, commission. 
and um, found out that she spent some time at Howard, found out, you know, she's an AKA. So does it, does it help you, I guess, in terms of just general advocacy to have that kind of a, alliance with colleagues on that level, you know, HBCU, uh, familiarity, divine non-familiarity in, in terms of how you advocate from your seat as a county commissioner? It, it definitely it definitely does. Uh, it, we have some people of like-minded experiences and mm -hmm. thought process. Uh, you know, it's, it's no doubt that, you know, those things help shape uh, Commissioner Sawyer as well as uh, Commissioner uh, Ford, uh, Commissioner Van Turner, who's, it went to Morehouse as well. Yep. Yep. Uh, you know, uh, Commissioner Reginald Milton went to Lamont on College. Uh, Commissioner Eddie Jones, uh, well, he may not have uh, gone to HBCU, but he he's a member of the, of, of the Divine Nine. So you, you find some common commonalities within people and to say, okay, well, you know, uh, what's important to our communities? What's important to Black folks? What, you know, what, what's important to uh, the people that we represent as in a whole? So uh, that de it definitely does play a part uh, by helping us come to some common ground that where we disagree, we can say, okay, it kind of goes back to that family thing, those HBCU family. You can disagree with folks, but then next time you move on so you can, you know, align with something else. So uh, that, that's, some, that's a great factor that we had that, that in common. So you mentioned a little bit that there were some ways in which um, Shelby County would kind of help with some of the, the struggles. Let's just call them what they are yeah. with the more annoying. Um, so what are some of the ways that, you know, Shelby County is helping? And maybe they can inform ways that other local governments can possibly help with the HBCUs in their communities oh, as well. Yeah, I was, I, was, I was proud to be a part of this and sponsor it. Um, uh, the county commission uh, recently uh, awarded, uh, along with the county mayor, uh, uh, $500,000 to Lamont on College Sports Technology. Mm -hmm. uh, okay. And now, again, as, we, as when COVID hit and hit us all, uh, you know, you had to adapt to a new normal. And Lamont, quite frankly, wasn't at the point where it could just go 100% uh, to virtual learning. Mm -hmm. uh, because a lot of their students, like a lot of, you know, it mirrors our school system. Everybody in the school system doesn't have a laptop. Everybody yeah. in the school system doesn't have Wi-Fi. And the most technology they have access to was their cell phones. And everybody's doing things from their cell phones. So how do you take an environment uh, from, those, from those students? Well, a lot of those students may not have had, a, again, different backgrounds, upbringings, who knows what their family life was like. This was probably where they were living, right? And you asked them, say, well, you can't come back on campus. So we'll be able to invest so they can have technology for all their students. Now they have to have laptops for every student on campus. Nice. They're really brought into uh, creating a virtual learning environment uh, for their students as well. So those are things where the government was able to step right in and say, hey, here's a need. Um, you know, we're gonna, we're, gonna, we're gonna meet that need. We're gonna you know, treasure the only HBCU that we have uh, in the city and the county. And, and we're gonna do what we can to help out in this regard. And the good thing about Lamont was on its way to doing those things, but mm -hmm. you know, our help has helped accelerate uh, that process for them. And, and I'm glad also too, um, by us having some belief and people seeing where Lamont's trajectory, I mean, I'm sure you read about this or, or saw it was big news for Lamont that it got the largest gift in the college yeah. uh, recently of uh, 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 40 million. 40 million, million right? Yeah, yeah. Which, which is equivalent, is just equivalent of the, $20,000 that Dr. Lamont put up to start the college back in 1862. That's how, that's how massive this uh, gift is for a college of our size, uh, Lamont's size to this day. So um, that just shows that Lamont's on the right trajectory. You have other mm -hmm. people believe in what they're doing, uh, see the pipeline they're creating, 
and when government can step in when, when possible to help out schools. And again, you know, we're talking about HBCUs, uh, but I don't want anyone to listen to think that we, we've done the same thing for University of Memphis. We've done the same thing uh, for Christian Brothers. Uh, we've done the same thing for Rose uh, when it comes to needs because you know, all of our schools are important. But we're talking specifically about HBCUs and, and, and I was uh, tremendously proud that we were able to step up and got unanimous support for that. Uh, all 13 county commissioners, which, uh, which makes me even proud because there are certain commissioners, as you know, that don't look like you and I, don't have that experience, don't know what the HBC yeah. experience is about, maybe sometimes question it themselves, but was able to see the need there and, and vote to support it. Yeah, and, and I'll say it, you know, maybe because you can't, but like Lamar Nolan deserves, right? And like, wow, and wow, like the help and stuff that you gave to university, like, the, you know, that they give to University of Memphis and the other great institutions that are in the city, you know, we look at our HBCUs, our beloved institutions, as really underserved communities sometimes. Like our fund, we don't get the same amount of funding. Uh, like our fundraising efforts are a lot more nuanced than maybe your major flagship universities. So when we get these kind of rewards and you see government step in in such a way to be like, hey, they're doing great things in their community. We want to make sure that we're almost balancing the playing field in some sort, right? I think that's super, super important. The other reason why I love the $40 million donation is because as much as I love Morehouse, I do understand the privilege that I have of going to like a Morehouse, right? Because just when... um. Jeff Bezos' ex-wife, when she gave out yeah. all of, like, she went to the Morehouse, the Spelman, the Howard, you know, the, yeah. you know, the yeah. whatever you want to call the, those yeah. top schools. And sometimes your Lemoyne Owens, your, you know, Delaware State, like all these different kind of schools kind of get like looked over. So it was for me, I am glad to see some of the wealth being passed around and understanding why they may not have the biggest name or may not be as recognizable. They're still super important. And they're producing great people. Yeah. And the good, yeah, the good thing you mentioned about that is that when, when you see, because that always happens when people give money, you know, they, you know, they go to Howard, they go to Morehouse, they go to Spelman. Mm -hmm. And, you know, being a product of, uh, of other schools, I don't think no one's upset with that because we need those schools to be successful, right? Yeah. We, you, you kinda, if, it, if it's going to be the top tier, uh, it's going to be the top tier in the family to a certain extent, you need, or, or the largest, you know, especially with the amount of students, things of that nature. You need those schools to be successful, but you're exactly right. You you want you want the Stillmans and the Paynes and the Miles Colleges and Valley yeah. State, Savannah State, all those things that you know that you may not have uh, schools you may not have heard about. Mm -hmm. You know they don't get the, the they get the notoriety. The Lamorno Colleges of the world. You want them like, hey, well, you know, let's just make sure uh, that we're getting something. And UNCF does a good job of that as well. Yeah. Uh, but but you're exactly right. I was I was I was you know. You know, very proud when that gift was given to Lemoyne um, that to recognize what the college is doing. So uh, I'm with you on that. Uh, we want them all to be successful. Absolutely, and I, you know, and I, because I, it's it's interesting because when I tell people about Lemoyne or things like that, you know, who who are who aren't from Memphis, they kind of you know look at me with with an eyebrow up, or even when I say Alcorn or Lane yeah. or Rust, and I'm like, you yeah. know. Being from Memphis, one, I'm exposed regionally, right? But also just understand HBCU culture. It's more than, you know, Howard Spelman, Morehouse, you know, Hampton and whatever, whatever. And again, they're great, but like there's diversity and all of these really great institutions have really um, something really different to offer. Even if you just look at our homecomings, right? I've, I've had the privilege to, to go to a few and enjoy myself at a few. Sure, sure, and, sure. Um, and, and just like the culture, the environment, um, it all felt like family, you know what I'm saying? Because we're all coming together, but you can just really tell 
what some of their specialties were, how they embraced certain things on campus, what they highlighted. Um, but I, what, what I want to kind of begin to talk through is this list that the U.S. news produces every year that kind of ranks us yep. and how sometimes it can create this almost internal divide. Um, so I want to ask you, do you think lists like that do more harm than good? Uh, and what kind of mentality do you think is kind of created amongst those from the outside looking in specifically about, you know, HBCUs? Yeah, I don't worry about the list. Uh, yeah. You know, and, and I get you, I mean, there's stats, right? Mm -hmm. uh, you have graduation rates, things of that nature, the cost of the college, they're very informative. Um, but when you're making your decision about the HBCU, if you're really considering it, you're gonna go on that campus for yourself. You're gonna go yeah. talk to the people around it. You're gonna talk to the students. You're gonna talk to the president, maybe, even that. That's what some things you get afforded to at HBCU that you'll get to do at some some institutions. Big fact. You're gonna form, you're gonna form your decision from there. It feels, does it feel like home for me? Does it feel like a place I can thrive? You know, you're gonna talk to some alumni who are, where it can show you, oh, this is where I've got to because of. So again, the list are there, uh, that's fine. Uh, the stats are there, graduation rates are there, they're important, we want, we want them all to increase. We want all HBC graduation rates to increase. Uh, they look at, we shouldn't probably judge on the same playing field as much college, especially we have non-traditional schools. They track mm -hmm. it for a six year period, but a lot of people stop going to school, they go to school, they stop going to school to go to work, they go back to school, they don't fall into the graduation rate because it's over a six-year period. So they didn't graduate in that six-year period. Then your graduation rate continues to fall. That person could have come back two, three years later, mm -hmm. graduated. I have, one of my roommates personally uh, was on a plan longer than six years because they stopped going to school for a mm -hmm. certain time. They moved back and worked, and they came back, went to school, and, and graduated. So, you know, there are a lot, there are a lot of things into it. It's like looking at, you know, and I – which we do have an issue with being better, but it's like looking at cities with crime. You know, yeah, there's, there's the stats, they're there, they're real stats, uh, but if you were considering moving uh, to Memphis or any other of those cities that maybe, or Chicago, um, you, know, without, you know, does it feel like home to me? Can I thrive here? Can I, can I make a difference there? There are a lot of people moving into our communities uh, every day because of uh, the wealth of potential uh, that our community has. So. You know, I don't get caught up in that. I understand why some people may say it may do more harm than good, but if you're basing your choice off that list anyway, yeah. you probably weren't considering, but maybe one or two anyway. And I get that. That's cool. So a um, couple of ending questions here. Um, one is just give some final words of advice and encouragement to somebody who's navigating um, which HBCU to consider. Yeah. And then what does that advocacy look like? Like, for, I know you have daughters. So what does that look like for you? Because I know at my house, my sons, I'm like, you ain't got to go to Morehouse. Like, I want you to. But yeah. I am definitely pushing HBCU for undergrad. Yeah. Um, yeah. Ultimately, it's their decision, and I want them to make it. Um, but what does that advocacy look like for you? And then what would you tell, like, a senior right now who's thinking about one of our HBCUs? Well, I, at first, I'll start with a senior. I, I, I tell them, get on campus. Take a visit if you can. If you can't take a visit there, make sure you're doing a virtual visit. Do a virtual walk. Mm -hmm. um, talk to people who've gone, talk to current students. Talk to some alums who've gone there as well. And talk to people on campus. And, and so really realize that that's the place for you. Uh, I tell you, all HBCUs are going to create an environment of learning, 
you're going to yeah. thrive, you're going to have family. But again, there may be some that maybe there may be larger on the HBCU side. There may be some smaller schools that fit well for you. Maybe a direct discipline that you're interested in. Tell me about the engineers that have come out of the school. Tell me about the urban educators that are coming, coming out of here. Think about what your passion is and where your walk is. And then align those questions and that discussions with folks who are on campus. Mm-hmm. And then you may ask yourself, do I, you know, you may want to say, well, do I want to go to a school where those things are already in line for me as far as my activities in nature? Or do I want to go somewhere where I can help bring in my own thing and, and I, they don't have this here? I can bring that here. I used to promote, you know, maybe you promoted parties, maybe you promoted events where you are. I can bring that to the school. There's yeah. a lot of people you can really get involved. Uh, so I tell you that you can really make a name for yourself or really have some more involvement from HBCU. And obviously, again, um, you know, some of our sharpest, our sharpest thinkers and, 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 and our movers and shakers and, and, and our philanthropists, our, our, our politicians and educators, they're coming out of HBCUs. It, that, that's a proven fact. Um, again, I hear what you say about your, your, uh, your uh, sons and, and I'm with you on the same. I, I joke with mine. I like, look, look, look if I got to pay for it, I, I get to choose where you go. <laughs> <laughs> you know, so that's, that's kind of one of those things where, again, that, that's not the case. It's going to be up to them. But I say that so they can make sure they're focusing on their schoolwork and they're doing the best they can to earn uh, the scholarships they can. My parents, my, I mean, my parents told me, they're like, look, uh, you got to pay for a third. You got to figure it out. Dad's going to pay for a third. Mom's going to pay for a third. You get the other third. Mm-hmm. Well, thankfully, I was able to take care of 100%. Yeah. Uh, uh, thanks, thanks for the coach Johnson again. But at the same time, that instilled in me, okay, you know, this is this is just not going to be a you know mom dad you know write the check you know you know we didn't have it like that anyway. So, um, but but I tell them, listen, I would love for them to attend uh, to go to an HBCU. Yeah. I'm going to always talk about that. Uh, always, they're going to go to be around Lamar. They're going to be around other schools as well. And hope they'll make their own decisions uh, uh, from there. And, and I'll try not to pressure so much. But, you know, in my household, I knew early on that's what I was doing. And I think uh, as time goes on, my daughters get older, um, they'll figure that out as well. Yeah. So one last question as we as we wrap up. Um, I think everybody has that one professor and that one cafeteria worker who always looked out. Do you ah. remember, like for me, it was Tobe Johnson, the guy who I talked about who um, sang the song, Dr. Tobe. He was yep. an amazing yep. professor. Hard yep. as all get out. I'm going to say it that way. Um, but like stayed on us. Absolutely amazing. Impacted my life, my career, how I think about the world. And then Miss Gwen who always looked out. She was given that extra piece of chicken. She saw yeah. when I was tired. She saw when okay. finals kicked my butt. Yeah. Um, so, so who are those people for you? Yeah, so I got... I got- a couple, but I want to. I got to start off with uh, Dr. McFarland. Uh-huh. Uh, you know, there. Uh, he's also as well. Um, he was he was my uh, marketing uh, professor, uh, business professor, and, and you know, he just basically stayed on us. Mm-hmm. He stayed on us about you know what we should be doing. He didn't let me slack up. You know, if I didn't have my work assignment, I could try to come in with the you know, well, you know, we were on the road for the past you know week and a half. <laughs> you know, just got back and you know I didn't have time to do do doing practices, and he was like, you know, Mr. Lau. Mr. Larry, that's no excuse for your responsibilities, you know. It, you know, and he said, maybe I need, to, maybe I need to talk to uh, coaches for you. And I'm like, well, no, hold up. You know. <laughs> <laughs> so, so, so I always appreciate him uh, for for being straightforward and and for really uh, pushing us um, to be responsible in in our classrooms. And you know, it wasn't so much. You know, we had a lot of cafeteria cafeteria folks, the cafeteria uh, folks. But for me, it was really. Uh, 
Joe, her name was, you know, God rest her soul, she's no longer with us, but her name was uh, Jodell Cox. Mm-hmm. And she was in, in, you know, in, in student development and in academic affairs. And she's always looked out. She always was, you know, you know, it's like, hey, Miss Cox, you know, it's, one, it's kind of one, she knew everybody's business, but she you felt like she belonged to you. Mm-hmm. It was like, I need to get my grades up, so what a pledge, you know, I need to, you know, what, what, what do I need to have and make sure that, okay, cool, I got that. And then, you know, then you go on and you're doing that. And then she's the first person that came to me. I remember she was like, Kelly, you should really um, consider running for SGA president. And it wasn't even on my radar uh, at the time, really. It wasn't. Uh, I was involved in some other things, but, you know, it just wasn't on my radar. So you need people like that to help you get, help shape your vision. Because, you know, if we went for that initial conversation from Ms. Jodell Cox about, you know, you should, you know, think about student government, get involved here, get involved in this. And, you know, obviously that shaped where I am today about having that involvement by making sure that, you know, I, I wasn't sitting on the sidelines when it came to certain things. And, you know, I'm elected to this day. And that's a small part because of Ms. Jodell Cox told me my junior year that I should think about being SGA president. Yeah. So there's people like that that have an impact in your life and you don't even know it. That's what's up, man. This has been a, a really great conversation. I could talk about HBCU and culture all day, every day. I don't think I ever get tired of it. No. Um, but as we end this, man, tell the people how they can possibly connect with you and maybe some things that you got in the pipeline. Sure, sure. You can always connect with me. Uh, you know, I'll send my email address. It's, it's just mikhail.lowry at shelbycountytn.gov or call directly down to the county commission. Easy number, 222-1000. Uh, love to connect with you if you have some ideas about what we should be doing in our county, especially if you live in District 8. Uh, again, and if you have some ideas of what's going on in that area, you want to hear about what's going on in that area, I want you to be involved. Uh, a lot of things are going on right now. We just announced uh, the Our Beautiful Comeback Grant, which okay. is a grant that helps out our personal contact care facilities, such as barbershops, nail salons, uh, 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 beauty, you know, beauty salons, and, and things of that nature. So, and we all go to those, especially my HBCUs. We all know how important how important the barber is, how important mm-hmm. the mm-hmm. are. And you know, during COVID, during this pandemic, you know, they were one of the first places to have to shutter. And not only that, they were shuttered for over, you know, for over five weeks. Yeah. So when you shut it for that long, and then when you open back up, you have to open that back up with certain safeguards. You got to have the PPE. You have to have disposable capes. You have to have the sanitizer around. So you open, you have additional expense. So now there's a grant program that you can go apply for uh, up to $2,000. We set aside a million dollars for these small businesses. And no, that doesn't, doesn't change the world, but that can help someone keep the lights on for a couple months or pay for the uh, uh, sanitary uh, supplies they have to have in order for their business. So we're doing a lot to help small businesses uh, out right now, uh, especially during this COVID time. Uh, we make sure that we have grants available for our nonprofits that are, they are really uh, stepping up to assist with a lot of COVID-related um, uh, activities. Yeah. So that's what we're doing right now. I'm, I'm proud. I'm proud to see the work that we're doing. Awesome stuff, man. So again, thank you, bro, for yeah. coming and being a part of the podcast. You going? We're going to actually stick around for a while, and we're going to talk about some black man self care in a minute. Let's All right, get to that's good, so welcome back, y'all. We're going, you know how we do it in this segment. I am my brother's keeper. We talk about black men self-care. So, Mikhail, tell the people what you got planned for self-care this week. Man, listen, let me tell you something I've been doing um, every day since December. Okay. Uh, and every book I've read has always talked about this. You've heard this before. But I started meditating. Okay. And so 
uh, and think I can tell I haven't missed a day since I started. Uh, and I'm telling you, that's been really th helpful for my self care. I, I, even if I, I started off every morning and if I, if my morning gets sidetracked, I make sure I, I knock it out at night, but there are apps that you can buy or, you know, if you forget the apps, just go to YouTube and just type in 10 minute meditation, 10 minute guided meditation. Or if you have something that you know, that's about meditation for stress, meditation for anxiety, meditation for fears. A lot of things, some things we don't want to talk about sometimes that we have going on inside of ourselves. Yeah. Uh, you type in whatever that thing that you think that you're struggling with and there's a meditation for, and again, basically just helping you to take time yourself, focus on your breathing, focus on the thought process, you know, really be at peace at that moment. Mm -hmm. It's helped me tremendously, um, especially when I have tough decisions to make, especially in my current role right now, whether it's in the county or at work. Or my daughters that I that I'm trying to make sure uh, that I'm doing being the best father I can with my wife. But yeah. I'm trying to make sure that uh, I'm I'm doing the best I can even when we disagree uh, 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 tremendously, whatever that may be. Right? Yeah. Uh, that that little piece of time is time to myself, uh, time to reflect. Uh, you know, your mind will wonder sometimes, but sometimes it's a good thing because you never know what thoughts come up during meditation that you end up taking. Uh, to another level right. uh, so you know that's my help my self-care tip uh, for this segment meditation I'm a big proponent of it. I'm a believer of it and again I'm late to the game you know we had some jokes last time about my age I know I'm not I'm ashamed to say I'm 43 years old man so you know but the thing is I just caught on to that uh, you know not even a year ago until we being serious about it there are people who've been doing this for years and you hear about it like ah okay Cause you feel like you're too busy. You got too much going on. Yeah. I'm working the road. I want to hit the gym. I want to do this. I got too much going on. Really, it takes some time to yourself. Slow down is what it's really, really telling you, and it help you help shape your thoughts. So, uh, meditation, my self care tip. Yeah, forty three. You still in your prime, man. It's I'm a, no, hey, look, man. <laughs> look, I'm making it do what it do. You know what I'm saying? So that's what it is. <laughs> still in your prime, man. I think uh, for me, one of my closest friends, he actually. Uh, I live in Atlanta now, and he left Atlanta to move to Memphis because uh, he got he he married a woman from Memphis, and they decided to live there. Uh, but he recently picked up golf, and uh, recently picked up golf. And one of my other homeboys, we were it was like the three of us. He still lives here. He hit me up, was like, "Hey, we got to get on this golf thing for Chris, man." And I'm like, "Let's do it." So uh, I'm definitely going to like start investigating what that looks like and doing some research on clubs, and because uh, I'm pure trash right now like i've done i've done some like top golf type stuff and i'm pure trash Dude, um, so i know like some some i want to get into though Dude, you're speaking my language so let me i i gotta tell you about this okay i started playing golf in april only because like during the pandemic mm -hmm. the golf courses were one of the few places where you can go outside yeah. <laughs> i mean you know think about when the pandemic started it was like stay inside restaurants are closed mm -hmm. order takeout you know that's it then a month later, the golf course, well, the golf courses are open, social distancing, that nature. And I called up one of our fraternity brother, my line brother. And you talk about trash. I didn't have clubs, man. I was like, let's go. <laughs> I was like, huh? I'm like, well, you know, okay, well, let's let's go do something. Let's go mm -hmm. outside. Let's get out the house. And uh, shamefully, since April, I caught the bug and I probably played about probably two, three times every week. Uh, bought my first starter set uh, a couple days after that. Got rid of that set. Got some some legitimate. Okay. So uh, I'm telling you, it, it, it's it's I enjoy the game. 
I wish I started that a long time ago as well, but uh, it's something that I know I'll be able to do for a, few, a, a lot more years. I, I, listen, basketball is only, I can only do that so much. And then, you know, people, you know, again, as my friends get older, we're not getting the basketball court no more. So they're yeah. going to the golf course. So it's something I can still go compete on out there. Yeah, I mean, so that's what 43 is here. You, the knees ain't the same no more. Oh, yeah, you know, it, 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 <laughs> I just keep that thing, you know, you know what I'm saying? But, you know, as far as everything else, uh, you know, and, and everybody trying to, you know, uh, hurt no Achilles and get no knee problems out there. So, someone wants to have a shoot around, play some horse, I'm with you all day. You know, if you want to play, if we got to compete, we got to go to the golf course now. <laughs> <laughs> I'm with it, man. Again, thank you so much for coming on the um, the podcast and having a super, super important conversation. We're going to wrap it up and go into our final segment we call A Greater Conversation. Let's do it. Let me talk. Let me talk. So let me just go ahead and make this um, disclaimer before I get into it. The thoughts in which that I'm going to be discussing are not that of my <laughs> my podcast guest. These are my thoughts. I'm not going to say anything too crazy, but I do want to make sure that I am providing a clear reflection of what I am thinking. Now, for greater context, one of my closest friends, he we were in our group chat and he's in an MPA program. That's a master's of public administration program at a particular school. I would not say the school. Um, and they had to write in their discussion board about the ways in which nonprofits can help ease the gap racially and economically um, between communities. Right. And this is what a particular white female um, white woman colleague of his decided to say. She said, I do not believe there is a need for nonprofits to address racial discrimination and social health and economic inequalities because every citizen, every citizen in the United States has the same shot at success. During the last half of the 20th century, Congress took sweeping action to address discrimination inherent in parts of society at the time, giving black Americans equal or more access to educational, political and business opportunities. Today, the continued emphasis on the idea of systematic racism is perpetuating black victimhood and undermining this progress. It also diverts attention from truly emergent issues such as black on black violence. Recently, Obama called for the police and public to work together to create a new normal in which the legacy of bigotry and unequal treatment no longer infects our institutions or our hearts. But there is no need to create a new normal because discrimination does not infect our institutions. Systematic racism is a myth. For example, I have spent 20 years working with victims of crime and I can tell you the criminal justice system is not racist. Law enforcement operates in a statistically driven manner, patrolling more often those areas with a larger concentration of crime. Therefore, if you live in or frequent areas high in crime, you will have more encounters with police. While it is true that blacks make up around 13% of the population, they commit 43% of total violent crime, including 42% of robberies and 50% of homicides. And 42% of cop killers in 2018 were black. I think the best thing nonprofits can do is to continue to support struggling families of all races by providing mentoring services, sports teams, and after-school programs for youth to help them avoid the pool of gangs and drugs. Nonprofits can also be hubs for education, job training, and resources which empower adults to seek and maintain employment. 
there's a there's a first of all this entire statement is absolutely asinine and erroneous and it makes me beg to question as much as I love my brother the admissions process of this institution to let such a terrible thinking bigot within their program let's just start at the basis right this is a master's of public administration program. Now, I've earned my master's of public administration and every program is different. But one consistent line within this program is that they equip future leaders to be able to run right and administer those those were public agencies, nonprofit sectors. So a lot of people you see who are politicians, a lot of people who you see who actually run and operate and hold um, really high positions within quasi governmental roles are those who hold the public administration degree. These are your your mayors, even some attorneys, your city council persons, your county commissioners, your leaders and directors of housing administration, your leaders and directors of school boards and school systems, right? Principals, all of these kind of people that create policy and legislation and principles that affect the livelihood, literally the livelihood of the people and the constituents within the communities that they are a part of. So to have an individual who thinks this way is absolutely scary. Right. And it speaks to the very true narrative and fact that the reason in which many of us, specifically black and brown folks, suffer and are disenfranchised because there are individuals in places like these who hold seats and sit in positions that are meant to um, affect change and that are meant to um, really kind of constitute how we navigate life. These are the type of people that are getting degrees and taking on these types of jobs and positions and creating policies that affect us. Right. So let's just start with a few things. One of the things is that she said that nonprofits should not play a role in addressing racial discrimination and disparities within health and economic status. Well, there should be more nonprofits dedicated to the work of addressing racial disparities. Why? Because they exist. And as long as these type of disparities exist, I believe that there should be organizations, be them non or for profit, whatever, that should exist to help eliminate those disparities. Now, when you begin to think of things like social health and economic disparities and gaps as well, it definitely exists between the black um, communities and the white communities, right? There is a wealth gap. There are health gaps. There are education gaps. But these type of gaps and disparities also exist within internal communities, right? There are low income white people who do not have the same access as middle income or higher income white families as well it happens within the black community it happens within the latino community it happens within our asian communities it happens within our native american communities it happens right but the more gasping and the more awing gap is those um, those gaps that exist between black and white communities so when you say nonprofits should not 
um, address any of these disparities. Not only are you saying that it is okay for white people and black people to be on uneven playing fields, but you are also suggesting that um, low income people and higher income individuals should not have any medium or medium middle ground and that low income people do not deserve the help and the assistance of organizations to allow them to have access to resources to help close this gap. That was your first mistake, young lady. The second issue that I have with this is that you talked about the sweeping ways that Congress has implemented programs over the years to address some of the disparities that are that has happened and occurred and is still occurring within the United States. Are you referencing things like um, SNAP, better known as food stamps or um, the housing choice vouchers, better known as Section 8. Are you looking at things like TANF and all the different types of governmental assistance that helps needy families? Are there people who take advantage of these systems? Oh, absolutely. But that is not a black issue. That is a human issue. Are there ways in which these programs can be administered to be more equitable and to have less red tape and to have a better level of compliance and auditing? Sure, we can talk about that. But if if you're talking about these programs, what you must understand is that one, these programs are only necessary because of the systematic racism and the lack of access to resources that a lot of black people do experience from a day to day basis. So when an individual is left with no option, let's take this stupid, well, I'm not going to call it a stupid pandemic because it's real, but I'm calling it stupid because of the level of frustration that I have with it all right specifically with people not wearing their mask and taking precautions to make sure that we lower the rate and the spread of it. But anyway, let's take the pandemic, for example. There are hundreds of thousands of millions of people who were unemployed, who were laid off, who were permanently and indefinitely unemployed. I am one of them. Now, thankfully, I've been able to have resources to keep my family intact and we were able to have the things that we've um, that we have and that we need but there are not a lot of people with the type of privilege that I have I said that to say that some people have had to resort to working in fast food to working in retail to doing a number of different things while nothing is wrong with that but it is a significant decrease in the salary that they were used to and that they had pre pandemic and a lot of them now are relying on the assistance that extra six hundred dollars that the republican senate did not approve and didn't you know pass the time that it expired the food stamps that they now are eligible for the medicaid and all the other resources like they need those things to make sure that they're able to maintain their lifestyles they're able to take care of their families and they're just able to survive furthermore these are the same programs this these sweeping efforts that you're giving Congress all this credit for, these are the same programs that you also use to belittle the black and brown community by calling us things like lazy, that we receive handouts, and that we don't know how to take ourselves by by our own bootstraps and pull ourselves up. In order to pull yourself up by the bootstraps, my dear, you must first have boots. And many times the reason why we we are facing the systematic woes that we are facing is because that we were not even given boots. So what are we going to pull ourselves up by? It is absolutely asinine and ignorant to suggest that these programs alone will cure right the systematic ways of oppression, racism, 
bigotry and prejudice that still exists within this country. And if you were also referring to things like um, what is the program that I am thinking of? Um, my God, affirmative action. There it is. Y'all love to talk about that. But what you really don't like to talk about are the ways in which affirmative action benefit white women the most. Not black folk, not black men, not black women, but white women are the biggest benefactors of affirmative action so the programs and the policies in which that you have suggested that have been put in place by congress over the years be them helpful have not been enough to equal or even the playing field for black men and black women within this world and then you said then you had the nerve to say that implementing or having organizations that would address a lot of these disparities are taking away from bigger issues, things like black on black crime. Let me tell you something about black on black crime. Are you ready? Lean in a little bit closer. Come on, just a tad bit closer. One more time, just a little bit closer. Black on black crime does not exist. Why? Doesn't it exist because it is just crime when white people kill white people? It is not white on white crime when Latino people kill Latino people. It is not called Latino on Latino crime when Asian people so forth and so on. Right. It is not <laughs> categorized as blank on blank crime. It is just crime. Now, the other thing that refutes the idea of black on black crime and the ways in which it is racist is because statistics will show you why you're trying to bring up numbers, which I will get to soon. So statistics will show you that most violent crimes happen among people who are already familiar and know each other. You know what that means? That if a lot of black folk or a lot of white folk are in community with the same type of people, more white folk and more black folk and crimes happening among people who already know each other. You know what that means, young lady? That means that they're going to kill other white people. That means that black folk going to kill other black people. And it's just crime. Does it excuse the crime? Does it, does it excuse the murder? Does it, does it excuse the assault? Absolutely not. But what is suggested that these type of crimes happen most often within the communities of the people who live there. Very rarely are black folk just going into white suburban areas and shooting up the place. Not happening. Right. Not in the ways in which you are alluding to. So miss me with the black on black crime. Y'all are so quick to point out Chicago and point out um, Texas and point out Memphis and point out Detroit and point out all these other areas that have had or experienced or are still experiencing higher crime rates. But what you fail to address are the ways and you talked about this later. So let's go ahead and get into it now. What you fail to address are the ways in which the police officers are set up within these areas. If you put more police officers within a black community 
it is an automatic fact that there will be more arrests and more criminal records within that community because you have a higher rate of patrolling. So even if I run a red light, even if I get into a, a domestic altercation, even if I get into a street fight, if a police is consistently patrolling that area, he or she is more likely to make an arrest or to see what could be considered um, a petty crime or whatever simply because there are more people within that area now that could be a double-edged sword why because we do need police officers to patrol our areas and make sure that they're safe but over policing is an issue it breeds fear it breeds contamination and it also creates this dogmatic approach to communities where they don't look at the people within those communities as human beings. They look at them and they target them in ways where they're seeking how to arrest them, how to get them off the streets, how to quote unquote do this whole law and order crap that your president is suggesting. And these are the systematic and racist approaches to um, to policing that is problematic. We don't need necessarily more police on the streets that's not what we need love what we need is additional resources we need education the few, the one thing that you did say that was right is that there should be more efforts in educational programs and after school programs but how about this they need to be placed in these underserved communities right they need to be free that is where nonprofits come in and why do nonprofits matter in this point because they're tax, tax exempt they're usually eligible for grants and resources and funds that most organizations are are not eligible for so they can put these programs in underserved and low-income communities to do the exact same thing that you're talking about but we have to combat greater policing with these kind of programs with these kind of systems to make sure that our children and to make sure that our communities are shaping and forming in ways that is productive right and have programs that reflect the communities that they are in so you have to understand when you put more police in an area, you're absolutely going to have more numbers of cases and arrests. Just think about when police are stationed in a particular area looking for traffic stuff on a typically busy street. If you put more police in that area, you're going to have more tickets given out in that given area because the amount of patrol that you see, the less police you have over there, the less tickets that you're going to that you're going to see given out. Now, that doesn't excuse poor driving behavior, but it does suggest that without the presence of them, the level of um, tickets and charges and points and stuff on a person's driving record would be decreased because of that. Right. Simply because because somebody may have been going five miles over simply because somebody may have um, missed a red light or failed to put on their signal in a turning lane. Right. This is a very small comparison. But what I'm suggesting is, is that over over policing is not the issue. We need to police in a way that builds community, builds respect and allows the individuals within that community to actually feel safe and not fear. One of the other things that you said, which is probably the most problematic of them all, is that systematic racism is a myth and that you actually work in the justice system and you have the unmitigated gall to suggest that there is no racism in the justice system. First of all, our justice system is just that, not 
just. And the fact that you can't see the racism within the system that you work in speaks to the level of privilege that you live within. It means that you're refusing to see it. Matter of fact, I can almost assume you're one of the problematic individuals that says you don't see color. And that is the type of person that would say these type of foolish things, these type of ignorant things, these type of bigot tree field passages of language and building narratives around racism by first countering that it is a myth and it doesn't exist let me tell you the ways in which systematic racism exists is when a man can be on the streets selling cigarettes albeit illegal i'll give you that and then be arrested and then killed and the police officers not prosecuted for killing murdering a man on the streets but then uh, a white man goes into a church kills the people within the church and is arrested peacefully taken to burger king to get something to eat faces his charges and goes on about his life while in jail but still the consequence and the and, and the approach to the crime is very different i die over cigarettes but i can live if i'm white if i murder a whole bunch of black folk the ways in which our quote unquote justice system approaches, right, approaches crimes that are vastly different is the one of the biggest examples of systematic racism. The ways in which Donald Trump are trying is trying to talk to suburban moms and suburban wives and talking about there won't be low income housing within those areas that he's going to protect their communities. You know what that is? That's systematic racism. That's a form of redlining. That's a form of housing discrimination. The fact that I just read an article last week about a mixed family who got an appraisal on their home and got one appraisal price he took down all of the pictures of his black wife got the house reappraised and it was worth almost double it went up almost double in its appraisal value systematic racism the fact that even in how because housing is one of my specialties public administrator um the fact that realtors white realtors will only show black families a select number of homes in select areas because they don't want to continue to infiltrate predominantly white areas you know what that is systematic racism the fact that schools that are predominantly white have greater resources and access to funds than schools that are predominantly black within the same school district within the same city systematic racism the fact that black and brown folk oftentimes don't have access to proper health care oh yeah corona has proven that um race public health racism is also a public health issue right systematic racism these are the things that we're consistently fighting these are the barriers that we have to consistently get over let's bring it all the way home and talk about the ways in which the media perpetuates systematic racism it is the way in which jacob blake could be helping to break up a domestic violence situation the police are called they don't have any of this context he's walking to his car and they begin to shoot him and they shoot him at point blank range seven times in his back. He was not fighting. He was not resisting. He was not threatening them. He posed no threat to their life. But what did the narrative say? Jacob Blake had a gun in his car. Police um, disarmed a black man. Didn't even have the gun. Didn't even have a gun. Didn't even have the knife. It was just in his car. 
And even if he did have it, what would that knife do to two other white men? They already proven that it would it wouldn't be a, it wouldn't be a threat at all to them. Right. That's the headline. He had a gun. He was a bad man because he's black. Right. But then here comes this vigilante, this white supremacist, neo-Nazi little human being from a state that's not even got nothing to do with him. A Trump supporter. And I'm going to tell you why that's important later. Comes over the state line and then kills several protesters, peaceful protesters, walks past the police after someone shouts and says he just killed people. He's just told then to go home and is eventually arrested peacefully. No gunshot wounds, no tasers, no pepper spray, no anything. And then the headline about him was that um, young teen just cleaning graffiti last week was arrested trying to disarm protesters. You see the issue with that? And then your president and the people had the nerve to say that if those protesters were not out past curfew, they would have not died. At what moment did breaking curfew or breaking any you know, just kind of minuscule law. I'll call it one of those. Something that's not even a felony, not even a real misdemeanor, right? At what point did any of that deserve killing? At what point do black people deserve to be um, tried and prosecuted tougher than their white counterparts for the same crimes? The same crimes. I'm not excusing criminal behavior on any, on like at, at, at any level. But at some point, if we do the exact same thing, there should be a level playing field on how we are treated and the consequences in which we are given. These are examples of systematic racism. These are and the people making these type of statements are people in the media, but not just media people. The man who said that about the curfew was the chief of police. Our president. Right. is saying some of the most ridiculous, racist, homophobic, xenophobic things that we've ever heard from a uh, from from a presidential administration. And you can't see the ways in which his rhetoric is influencing um, local communities, local governments, local laws and legislation. It is systematic racism that is real and that is apparent. And this is why HBCUs are so important, right? Because it teaches us about our culture and the beauty of who we are and teaches us ways to navigate the real world and how to try to avoid some of these situations. But the truth of the matter is, is that it really doesn't matter how educated we are. It really doesn't matter what we own and what we do at the end of the day a lot of people are only going to see us just as another nigga and the fact that you can't at least recognize that is problematic the fact that you said that these things are myths is problematic the fact that you said that providing resources and building organization to combat these issues and then you say it's taken away from bigger issues like black on black crime is problematic you, my dear, are problematic. And I really hope that your other car colleagues called you to the carpet. I really hope that the professor, I have very little hope, but I really do hope that the professor called you to the carpet. And as you navigate this program, you're able to see why that's why that statement, that long statement that you wrote was so wrong. It was so sincere, but it was sincerely wrong. And you thought you were educating someone. You thought you were doing good. But you were not. You did no good in that moment. That was stupid. It was racist. And you, my dear, are a racist. And you'll probably be the one to tell me you have black friends and you're still racist.
You'll probably be the one to tell me how you've helped this and you've done that and you're still racist because that post identified your train of thought. It identified your values and it identified your stance toward human beings. Does not matter what color they are. What matter is, is is that we're human beings. And because we are black human beings, you see us as less and you devalue us for who we are. This is why we need to vote to get Trump out of office, because he is emboldening people like her to say these type of things. Now, why is this important to a greater conversation? Because she's not the only one. And the scary part about it, like I said before, is that there are other people who are in her position getting degrees that she's getting and sitting in positions that she will probably sit in in the future, making important decisions about the livelihood and the well-being of humans and does not even value you human life little woman little girl it's time for you to grow up and rethink your thinking because it is tired and we don't have time for it anyway that's been another episode uh of the jigsaw man that was the calmest that i could do that and i am so glad and privileged that i am not a part of that program because i have no idea what my initial response on that discussion board would have been i'm almost sure I would have gotten kicked out of that class. But that is neither here nor there. Thank you so much for listening. Thank you, Mikhail Lowry, for joining me for this very important conversation about HBCUs and representing Memphis and Lemoyne Owen. I'm super grateful that you were here. Thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you. Thank you all for joining in. As you already know, next week, my boy Brian Hare is going to be here. I'm super excited. It's the last time that you're going to hear me by myself (laughs) in the virtual living room, but he's going to be here, and we're going to have a really great discussion next week as we bring him on on as the official co-host we got sunday school coming up this sunday um we only got two more left so this sunday and next sunday and i think by the next couple of weeks i'll have an idea yeah an idea about what we're going to do with the sunday school series so we'll talk about that then but until then y'all you can follow me on instagram at i am josh rogers you can follow brian at i am brian hair you can follow the podcast at the jigsaw podcast on instagram please write into us and tell us what your greater conversations are tell us how you're implementing self-care tell us um, about a black business that you know or a friend who has something great going on that you want to be shout out you can send those emails to the jigsaw podcast at gmail.com and we'll be sure to read them aloud on the show all right um i think that is all so in the meantime and in between time do not let life stress you out like that white woman in that mpa program but (laughs) do all you can while you can but whatever you do y'all do not get caught with your work undone until next time it's a wrap i love y'all